Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As the Women's Olympic Hockey Tournament hits the elimination round, Canada and the U.S., as expected, have been the dominant teams. But is a tournament where two teams shine brighter than the others involved good for the games? I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Post-media national sports writer Scott Stinson, who's a part of our team covering the Olympics, joins me to discuss why the rivalry between the Canadians and the Americans is fun to watch, elevates the games, and ultimately helps women's hockey. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Scott, I do want to talk a little bit about the goings-on at the hockey arena at the Olympics and specifically the women's tournament because there's been a lot of talk in media about, you know, whether women's hockey belongs in the Olympics because it's so lopsided in favor of a couple of teams at the expense of other teams. But before we do that, because I know that, you know, you've covered Olympics before you've covered events overseas before you've dealt with COVID protocol in Tokyo. What are things like on the ground in Beijing? How does it compare to last year? And what's the atmosphere like to be covering this event? The big difference, Dave, is in Tokyo, we were effectively in part of what was called an Olympic bubble. The idea was that everybody who was either participating in the Olympics or covering the Olympics was supposed to be avoiding the general public in Japan. But it was really like a honor system, like please respect the Olympic bubble sort of thing. You were essentially free to go where you wanted. You just were told where you ought not to go. Here in Beijing we are under lock and key basically. And there is security everywhere. You cannot leave the hotel without passing through security. And then the only place you can go is on a bus that takes you to the main press center. And from there it's more buses to other Olympic venues. There is absolutely no way to get out amongst the general public unless you wanted to try to jump the fence or rush the gates or something like that, which as far as I know, nobody has tried to do. So they call it a closed loop and it is well and truly closed. Mm -hmm. We are very much walled off from the Chinese public at large and we travel amongst this Olympic loop and we have another two weeks of it basically. (laughs) And then that'll be that. What's the mood like among uh, you and your fellow travelers? Well, I mean, look, the reality is we all sort of knew what we were getting into. I think everyone kind of wondered if it would be like a Tokyo situation where you might be able to bend the rules a little bit here and there. I can't say I'm stunned to find out that it's not that situation, that it is as strict as it is. So mm-hmm. we're here, we're covering the Olympics. It's It's still a very interesting event to cover. It just means you have a very limited option in terms of what you're doing when you're not actually covering events. But, you know, there are worse things to be doing. Turning attention to the events, obviously you've been covering a mix of of Olympic events, but one of the things that that people in Canada are really focusing on, and you and I have talked about it on the show before, is the goings-on at 
the hockey rink. And specifically so far, it's been the women's tournament. There's been a lot made of how it really comes down to a rivalry between Canada and the U.S. And we got a taste of that rivalry in the preliminary round. And, you know, after Canada routed, was it Finland and then trounced Russia we expected it like a, a nice heated competition between Canada and the U.S. And what were your thoughts on the game overall heading into it? And how did it come off for you with the end result? Yeah, it was good to see Canada be tested, frankly. And they had completely rolled over their first three opponents, including Finland and Russia, who you would think would be reasonably good hockey nations. When it comes to the women's game, Canada won their first three games. I believe the combined score was 29-3. So then they got into the match against the States, and they won 4-2, but it was very much a close game, a game that the Americans absolutely could have won. The Canadian goaltender, Anne-Renée Debien, had, I believe, 51 saves on the night. So she stood on her head. It was good to see, you know, that Canada-U.S. rivalry is just as strong as it's ever been. The teams are really evenly matched. They play hockey at a completely different level than the rest of the women's teams in the tournament. So it was both good and almost certainly a preview of the gold medal match, but also a demonstration of the gap between those two teams and the rest of the world. I think by this point in the Olympic program, you know, we might have expected that the gap had been closed somewhat, but here we are with the the two teams that are head and shoulders above everybody else. And and as I say, it would be uh, it would be a shock if they don't meet each other in the gold medal game uh, a few days from now. There's a notion going around, and I think recently there was a column by another news organization that basically said that because of this talent gap, the women's game should have no place in the Olympics because either it creates a level of unfairness or it just it dilutes the quality of the tournament to have these kind of gaps. But what are your thoughts on the idea that we shouldn't allow a tournament where it's this lopsided and whether the U.S.-Canada rivalry actually helps to grow the game? It's a tricky one because I think the Olympic decision-making bodies would have hoped that by now the the women's hockey was added to the Olympic schedule in uh, 1998. They would have thought by now that you'd have some other teams that are at least able to trade punches with Canada and the U.S. And in fairness, every now and then they do. Mm -hmm. Not at Olympics necessarily, but there's been the odd upset at a World Championships or a Six Nations tournament or whatever. So there have been, you know, the rare moments, but overall, yes, Canada and the U.S. are completely dominant and not just that they always end up at the finals, but they tend to steamroll everybody. So it is a very obvious talent gap. I think it's kind of grown even in recent years because basically Canada and the U S you know, they're in an arms race. And so they're putting more money, more investment, more talent into the pipeline, identifying players at younger ages, getting them into centralization camps. Like because Canada and the U S are so competitive, They're just driving each other to be better and better and better, and the rest of the world isn't. So even though the Finnish team now or the Russian team now might be better than it was 20 years ago, even significantly better, the Canadians and the Americans are that much better still. So it's not ideal. I acknowledge that, and I think the point of those 
criticisms has some merit. However, I think that the solution is not to just throw it out and say, well, we tried and it didn't work. Mm. <laughs> I think that it's better to have this tournament and, and these two teams in particular be an example of what other nations can strive to be. And, and there's a lot of challenges that go into that because, uh, you know, I think the biggest problem in these other countries like Sweden and Finland that I mentioned is that they just don't have an infrastructure for girls to play hockey and young women to play hockey in the way that it's, it's quite normal now in Canada or the States, you know, I'm in my late forties. When I was a kid, girls just didn't play hockey with boys or even at all. And now it's very, you know, standard practice. You have a four-year-old girl, you can put her in hockey just as easily as you can a four-year-old boy. So our countries have changed their systems rather significantly and the rest of the world hasn't caught up. And I think that in order for the other countries to catch up, they just have to sort of like decide to do it and invest the infrastructure and realize that it has to start from the grassroots level up. And I think if you throw up your hands and say, well, these two teams are too good, therefore this tournament shouldn't be in the Olympics, then the incentive for those other countries to try to do that is just going to disappear. So I'd rather see this tournament remain, the women's game to remain in the Olympics, and hopefully the rest of the world eventually, you know, it might take a long time. You know, there are other sports where there are very dominant countries and eventually other countries catch up. So we'll have to see what happens. We'll be right back. One of the things I was curious, if you feel that it's not unlike the situation in basketball when in 1992, professional players were allowed for the first time. And so you had what was once a competitive tournament where the U.S. didn't win every time and, you know, it was filled with college players who were playing against Soviet teams, things like that, mm -hmm. to having guys like Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and Larry Bird and they steamrolled the whole competition at that tournament. Yep. And I know that, you know, they haven't won every gold medal since then, but I think it helped actually grow the game beyond the U.S. You know, it coincided with the rise of Michael Jordan, mind you, as, as a global sports brand. Yep. But, but it allowed people to see what was possible and I think pushed a lot of countries to invest time in, in that sport. Absolutely. And I would also say on the Canadian men's hockey side there were decades where canada won at the olympics all the time eventually the soviets became good and they also won and i, I believe they had a long stretch where they always won at the olympics because they had like a real you know men's team whereas we weren't sending our best players we only they were in the nhl and not the olympics so there was a long stretch on the men's side of the game where it was Canada and miles ahead of everybody else. And then the Soviet Union miles ahead of everybody else. And then eventually the Finlands and the Swedens and the Czech Republics and the Slovakias even of the world. And obviously the United States, you know, developed competitive men's hockey programs. I, it kind of has to happen organically. The IOC can't wave a magic wand and say, these teams will get better at this thing. Mm -hmm. So Yes, the women's game has been slow to catch up, certainly relative to some of these other examples we've mentioned. But I don't think that it makes sense to just kind of go, oh, well. The other thing I would add, too, Dave, is like 
look, the reality is across the world, women's sports is not as well funded. It's not as equitable. It just always starts from a disadvantageous position. And so to my mind, there's a greater sort of social issue to keeping women's hockey in the Olympics, even if there is an imbalance and it's not ideal. And there's these problems we've discussed, like it's just sends such a bad sign to say like, Oh, well, never mind Mm -hmm. and scrap it off the program. Like the push for equality isn't won by just kind of throwing up your hands because you don't see a solution developing quickly. You have to sort of force it to, I think. And even if that means you don't necessarily have the greatest of early round games because Canada has beaten Finland 11 to one, you got to kind of give it a chance to sort itself out. And I think that taking that opposite tact, it just is not the message you want to be sending at this point in our existence. Yeah. And do you find it strange that the talk always seems to revolve around women's hockey? Like no one is turning around and saying, well, the Germans and the Norwegians always crush everybody at cross-country skiing. We should get rid of cross-country skiing because it's not equitable because, you know, Canadians are rarely meddling or the Americans never get a medal and it's always the Norwegians. Like, why do you suppose we always seem to have this conversation around this one sport? I think it's just one of those things where there's a lot of media attention on hockey in Canada and we happen to be the dominant sport. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be some takes on, Hey, you know, I've noticed this thing and it's a huge imbalance. So therefore we're going to, you know, make that argument. I have no idea if the Norwegian press <laughs> is pointing out that, you know, they're crushing biathlon and therefore it shouldn't be in the thing anymore. I, I, I just, I don't know, but you're, you're absolutely right. There are sports, the bobsled and the luge and those kind of things come to mind where the Germans are just, you know, light years ahead of everybody else. And of course we don't go, well, too many German bobsled winners, therefore we shouldn't have it. It's just the way it is, you know, whether it's Jamaicans and sprinting in the summer Olympics or, you know, pick your example. It, it there, There's lots of examples of a certain country doing particularly well at something and then the rest of the world eventually catching up to them. I do want to stick with hockey, uh, but want to broaden the conversation a little bit to the fact that we're also dealing with COVID. And there were, you know, lots made here in Canada around images out of the Canada-Russia game where all the players, all the officials we're wearing KN9495 masks. What's going on with COVID protocol and how the IOC and the Chinese Olympic Committee are managing the threat of COVID and what happened with that game specifically? With that game specifically, as far as we have been able to discern, because it was a noon start local time here, The Russians have basically said they didn't realize that they had to have their COVID results, their daily COVID tests submitted in order to allow for the results to be back in time of puck drop. So Mm -hmm. basically, before the game started, the Canadians became aware that they didn't have the results of the Russian team. There was some discussion. There was talk of a forfeit. Eventually, they decided to play with, as you say, KN95 masks on. Now... To me, from the moment I saw this happening, it seemed bizarre because, like, it seems pretty clear. If if they didn't have results, they probably shouldn't be playing. Like, we're, as I mentioned, you know, everything's so strict here. I get tested daily. 
I can't leave the hotel without scanning something that proves that I've had a COVID test. So it seemed quite bizarre that you'd have a whole team of athletes that would be allowed to compete having not provided test results, especially when there had already been a COVID outbreak on the Russian team. So that part was all very surprising. There's been some inconsistency in the way the rules have been applied, I would say. But it seems like they got through that game. Eventually, another Russian player did test positive, which certainly suggests that the Canadians were right to have been wearing masks. Mm -hmm. I just don't really understand why the Canadians didn't just say, well, we're not playing. (laughs) We have a bigger goal here, and it is to stay COVID-free and to compete for a gold medal. And if this team isn't going to provide us with the proper results, then we're not going to play them. Now, There's been some suggestion that the Canadians just wanted to get game in and they felt fine playing with masks on. I think as we know how COVID is transmitted, like it's unlikely that you would catch it in on a fast moving ice surface. But uh, anyway, it happened. It was a bit of a head scratcher. They seem to be beyond it now. We'll see what happens if for some reason they end up playing each other again. So far, no Canadians on the women's hockey team have tested positive, though. No, that's correct. No Canadian athletes have. And knocking on wood here on behalf of Team Canada, they didn't have any positive tests in Tokyo, which they've kind of admitted was somewhat miraculous. Mm-hmm. Once people arrived here, they had a couple who tested positive and had challenges getting here. But since they've been here, they haven't had any more positive tests. So whatever they've been doing in terms of being really careful and wearing masks around one another and in the village and whatnot, they've been able to avoid those problems yet. So we'll see if they can keep up that hot streak. Canada's had a decent medal haul so far, and there's been some slight disappointment. What's been your perspective on the games just a few days in, in terms of Canada's performance? Yeah, I think they've been kind of to be expected. I think you can never assume that all the medal contenders will necessarily win medals. There's been a couple of disappointments. Mikhail Kingsbury winning a silver medal as opposed to a gold medal was a shocker. He's been basically unbeatable through his career. But there's been some surprises as well. You know, the ski jumping team that won a bronze medal was a shocker in the other way and that like nobody had ever imagined Canada would be winning a ski jumping medal this team doesn't even get any like much in the way of funding Mm -hmm. so you've had some of those like slight disappointments you've had a few people that might have hoped to medal that didn't you've had some that you didn't necessarily expect to do so that did so I think they're probably about on pace I I believe it's eight or nine medals so far on day four or five of competition and you know they had 29 in Korea I think they're probably on pace to finish somewhere in the mid-20s now. So obviously it all depends on on what happens in the days to come. The mixed doubles curling didn't medal. They were the gold medalists in Korea, so that was a, a surprise. But you have two more curling competitions upcoming that they have potentials to win medals in there. So we'll see what happens. I would say overall it doesn't seem like it's been a disappointing opening few days to the games. But nor is it like they're blowing everybody away with their metal hall. So I think it's more or less kind of right about where you might have expected it to be. All right. Well, we'll be watching Team Canada as they compete at Beijing 2022. Scott, thanks for your time. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one. Ten Three is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Scott Stinson. More from him and the rest of our Olympic coverage team at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.